Lou Scheimer was on vacation in Hawaii because it was hiatus season. And Arthur read my short stories and sent them to Lou via FedEx. And then in the interim, I come in with the premises and Arthur looks the premises over and he goes, well, you know, they're close enough. I mean, he's, he's clearly got the ability to tell a story and he leaves the premises on Lou's desk. So when Lou comes back from Hawaii, he's got my premises sitting on his desk. And Lou called up Arthur and said, uh, you know, I really don't know who we should hire. If we should hire the guy who wrote the short stories or the guy who wrote the premises. And Arthur said, they're the same guy. And Lou said, get him. You are listening to the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thank you for listening to our little podcast that can. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a good review. My guest today is screenwriter and author Buzz Dixon. Buzz Dixon writes oddball TV, movies, games, comics, novels, putting words in the mouths of Superman, Batman, Conan, the Terminator, Optimus Prime, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mork and Mindy, Scrooge McDuck, Bugs Bunny, Yosemite Sam, plus more G.I. Joes and My Little Ponies that you can shake a stick at. His short fiction appears in Mike Shane's Mystery Magazine, The Pan Book of Horror Stories, National Lampoon, Analog, and numerous original and best of anthologies. If you were a kid in the 1970s or 80s, there is a good chance Buzz wrote for one of your favorite cartoons. He is a wealth of knowledge, and we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. Buzz Dixon, welcome to the Act One podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much. I enjoy being here. I uh, We were just chatting, and I was just saying how much I've been looking forward to this. And you, you've heard this probably <laughs> often, but I was uh, looking at everything you'd, you've worked on in the past, and I thought, man, this guy wrote half my childhood. <laughs> well, I hope, it was, I hope it was the better half. Yeah. <laughs> It was. I mean, I, you know, you, uh, you worked on so many shows in the 70s and 80s at a time when animation was dominant in the um, uh, Saturday mornings and what I call coming home, the, the, the afternoon block, coming home yep. from school. And we would rush home. And so for me, I'll just give you a quick. So for me, uh, afternoons after school were Transformers, GI Joe, He Man, and and then like a, a collection of either Thundercats or um, you know whatever else. Um, but but the mainstays for me were uh, GI Joe and Transformers, and then of course Saturday morning was full of you know, whatever the networks, you know, put out back then. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I just look back at that and I think, man, this guy. So you have, you obviously have had uh, a pretty varied career with all the different things you've worked on. I'd like to start, if we could, um, just kind of back at when you first got started. So I'd love to know, did you always want to be a writer? Was that something that you uh, grew up passionate about it and like what was was that encouraged uh, early on in your life well um 
I, I wanted to be creative in some form. And uh, as a little kid, I was always drawing pictures. Um, as early as the third grade, I was trying to write stories. Um, believe it or not, I tried writing a science fiction uh, stage play when I was in the third grade. You know, and I, I I quickly realized about like two pages in, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I, I stopped at that point. But um, I was always a creative kid. Uh, my family moved a lot when I was growing up. We we lived in 20 different houses before I graduated high school. That'll give you an idea of how much we moved. <clears throat> and so almost every year I was in a brand new class with brand new uh, classmates. And I gravitated towards science fiction fandom because the nice thing about science fiction fandom was you were never further away from your friends than the mailbox. You know, every time every time we moved, a change of address, and my friends were waiting for me when, you know, we got to the new house. So getting involved in science fiction fandom, I became interested in writing science fiction stories. About age 13, I began seriously writing stories with the intent that I wanted to submit them. Uh, and I actually did start submitting when I was somewhere between 13 and 16. And when, and when you say and when you say submit, so back then, and what time period are we talking about? So, like, wow, this would have been uh, sixty-six to seventy. So at that time, there were uh, like fan magazines and things like that oh, that fans, you, you yeah. submit to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. In fact, the the very first published byline I ever got was in a magazine that's now the magazine is now called Midnight Marquee, but back then was called Gore Creatures. <laughs> uh, Gary Svella was was and still is the editor of it. And uh, Gary published the first thing I ever wrote that I got a byline on. And wow. uh, it was it was a critique on uh, um, how how fake uh, rocket ship sets looked in most science fiction movies because they were <laughs> they were crappy. I mean, let's be honest, 1950s. Uh, I think Cat Women of the Moon, it has like a film reel hanging up in the wall. It's like. That's supposed to be science fiction. I mean, come on. But anyway, um, although, 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 mm -hmm. I just watched Forbidden Planet again the other day, and that movie holds up. That is, that but, is a spectacular, and that set was unbelievable. They spent a ton of money on that movie. Too. They must have that I mean, set. I was so impressed with that set. Oh, and and well, do you know the origin of, of Forbidden Planet? No, no. What's the okay. origin? There, there was a special effects company, um, Jack Rabin and, uh, oh gosh, what was the other guy's name? I, I'm blanking right now. The, the third silent part partner was named DeWolf. I can't remember the name of the, the second guy in it. But anyway, it was a small special effects company. They mostly did titles and stuff like that for industrial films, but they had an, a clever way of drumming up business. They would figure out a really cheap, inexpensive special effect. They would write a story around the special effect, and they would pitch it to low-budget movie companies. And when the company would buy it, they would uh, they would get to do the special effects. So they did um, War of the Satellites for Roger Corman. They did uh, Unknown World, which is about this tank-like thing crawling into the center of the earth. Mm -hmm. um, Monster from Green Hell, which had stop motion um, giant wasps in it. Wow. Um, let's see what else. Oh, Kronos, 
you know, oh, yeah. in Kronos. And they had they came up with this great idea for a, a movie set on a planet that was populated by invisible monsters because, and their logic was impeccable, you can have as many invisible monsters as you want. And so they, they came up with this thing and they pitched it to several low-budget studios, but somehow um, a copy of the pitch wound up at MGM. And MGM was seeing how successful uh, The Thing and uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still had been for other companies. And they said, well, we ought to jump on this sci-fi bandwagon. And so they bought it and they said, we're going to buy you out completely. We're not going to let you anywhere near the project. but um, so they bought him out, and that became the genesis of Forbidden Planet, the, the idea of a planet full of invisible monsters. It, it, it went from being a pitch to try to find the lowest, the cheapest, most affordable way to do effects to being a really huge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous, and it does. It, you know, you look at it today, and you just say to yourself, this is an artifact of the 1950s, so it reflects that design sensibility, that level of, of knowledge about science and psychology that they had then. But once you once you do that, it's like, well, this movie is it hangs together. It it really it, it works. does. It it, it really it, it really does. And I think that that and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off as you were uh, we'll, we'll get back to you. But isn't that what great science fiction does? Is that like watching Forbidden Planet, it's dealing with these basic human themes that are universal in yeah. terms of our human condition and science fiction does a great what, what's great about good science fiction is that it's deeply human and yes. that it's 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 actually which makes which makes a movie from the 50s still feel somewhat prescient today because yes. it's it's dealing with issues of fear fear of the other yeah. fear of the unknown um the idea of control and power and manipulation these are all things that we deal with, you know, every generation, every, every time, right? Yeah. This is, this is one of the reasons why a lot of 80s uh, sci-fi films, uh, lower budget sci-fi films don't hold together because they, they, they had no consideration of this. It was just how, how fast can we knock out an imitation of something somebody else did? So, yeah. so let's get back. I we can we can. I, I expect we're gonna we're gonna enjoy uh, talking about all these wonderful things. Uh, but but back to so you submitted um, to um, started submitting to these fan fiction magazines and fanzines and also um, professional science fiction magazines. I mean, I submitted to uh, uh, Galaxy, If, uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction. Fantastic, amazing. These were all digests at that time. Um, fantasy and science fiction and analog are both still being published. I, I it took me 50 years, by the way, but I finally cracked analog. I just, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've been, yeah, I was writing stories for them, submitting them, and uh, you know, spending a small fortune in in uh, mailing fees because back then you. Back then, you had to put it in a self-addressed stamped envelope so they could send it back to you when they would reject it. And, you know, <laughs> I, I I went through a lot of mailings. Let's just put it that way. 
Wow. That's that's what you need to do as a starting writer. You need to write, you need to submit it. um, And get feedback. And get feedback. And a lot of times today, they have um, fan fiction sites where people can literally post anything. And you get the feedback directly from readers, which, you know, is better than nothing. But it really helps when you have editors who will write back to you and say, you know, we, I'm rejecting this, but here's why. And, and they would give you an insight. I mean, I, I, I don't have the letter anymore, but John W. Campbell of uh, Analog um, and he was he was like one of the the greats of science fiction. He he goes all the way back to the forties. He wrote Who Goes There, which is the basis of the the Thing movies. Oh, wow. uh, uh, Campbell goes from like the forties up through the seventies. And when I was in the army, I submitted a story to him, and he actually wrote back like a two page letter, one or two page letter where he said, I'm rejecting this, but I like the thinking on it, and here's why I'm rejecting it. And it was it was a very good insight because it gave me, said, okay, here's, here is where I'm deficient. Here's where I need to apply myself. Um, wow. I had, I had been, I'll, I'll give you a really brief recap to get me into animation so we can move along. I wanted to be a movie director when I was in high school and I was, I was writing scripts and short stories, but the ultimate goal was to be a director. And in 1972, I was uh, drafted. I, I, I tell people I won, I won a lottery that gave me a free all expense paid trip to Korea, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which was lucky because I met my wife there. So, so I'm not knocking that, but in any case, I was drafted in 1972 the army figured, well, he can he can string three words together, so let's make him a newspaper editor. And I had wow. post newspaper for uh, a year, and then I was um, I was on the um, um, I was the what would you call it the um, NCOIC non commissioned officer in charge of public affairs for the Fourth U.S. Army Missile Command, uh, which um, no, excuse me, not. For U.S. Army Communications Command, uh, the Missile Command was the Post newspaper. Uh, it was with the fourth with the U.S. Army Communications Command, which uh, I was in, I was writing press releases and stuff that got, uh, you know, anonymously, but it would end up in like Time Magazine, Newsweek, things like this. So I I had a chance every day to to hone writing skills. Yes. And, you know, 99% of the time, it was what we called grip and grins, where, you know, somebody's getting an award and you just write the caption of these two guys shaking hands. But it it gave me a chance to work at writing. And and, uh, and, and especially even something even that specific, where it's mm-hmm. everything similar, you have to figure out how, how, do, how do I say the same thing differently? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, it, it is a challenge. In any case, when I got out of the Army... Uh, in 78, um, uh, I was married. Uh, we had a child. Uh, I had been accepted by uh, the University of Southern California to their film school, but the film school wouldn't start until fall. And I was discharged in February. So my wife and I decided we'll come out to California 
Uh, I would try to find a job in the movie industry as a driver or in the mailroom, gopher, something like that, just to get my feet wet until school started. And I literally started at Universal Studios just handing my resume out. I started there and I worked my way all the way down to Filmation Studios. Filmation wasn't 100 on the list. It was literally 98. I'm not kidding. And so I go into Filmation Studios and I've got my resume and go up to the receptionist. This is probably March, uh, March, early April, 78. And I go in and I say, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking for a job and I'd, I'd like, who do I, who can I give my resume to? And the receptionist said, well, are you looking for a job in animation or live action? Well, I don't know anything about animation. So I said, well, live action. And she says, wait a minute. She takes my resume and she goes in the back and then she comes out and she says, Arthur will see you. And this is Arthur Nadell, who was the producer of the live action shows at Filmation Studios because Filmation primarily did animation, but they also did a number of of live action shows. And it turns out it was hiatus season. And in animation, hiatus season was that period between the time you finished the last show that had been bought for the previous season, but the networks had not yet started buying shows for the next season. So there was like a three-month period where nothing's happening. And um, if the studio was big enough, they would keep you on and you would be developing ideas for them. Uh, if they weren't big enough, they would cut you loose. And at Filmation, it was virtually a ghost town at that point. And Arthur was sitting in the back with nothing to do. And he <laughs> goes, yeah, send this guy back. Give me some anything to kill an afternoon. So I go back and I met Arthur. And Arthur, I got to say, one of the sweetest gentlemen I've ever met in the business. Arthur is is just a was just a wonderful, nice person. And we struck up, um, you know, a good rapport with one another. Um, He was asking me about what I had done in the Army and my plans and this and that. And I mentioned I had written a number of short stories. I hadn't sold any, but I had written them. And he said, well, if you're ever around here again, uh, drop off, you know, your short stories. I'd be happy to take a look at them. Well, you know, you don't have to hit me over the head with a shovel. I go back to the apartment where we're staying. I dig out my short stories from uh, the suitcase they're buried in. And about a week later, I go back and I say, well, Arthur asked to see these and say, "Okay, go on back. I go back to see Arthur. He thanks me. And then he says, you know, we've got um, a show we're developing and we're having a difficult time coming up with premises for it. So now I can't ask you to do any work because if I do, I have to pay you. But if you on your own were to come up with some ideas and wanted to show them to me, I'd be happy to take a look. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So, you know, again, you don't have to hit me with a shovel. I go back. I pull out my typewriter. I I spend about a week coming up with six or eight ideas. And a week later, I go back and I drop the ideas off with Arthur. What I didn't know was this. Lou Scheimer, who was uh, with Norm Prescott, was one of the two principals at um, Filmation. Lou Scheimer was on vacation in Hawaii because it was hiatus season. And Arthur read my short stories and sent them to Lou via FedEx. 
Now, this is 1978. Sending something FedEx to Hawaii is a big deal in 1978. (laughs) Yes. He sends my short stories to Lou in Hawaii. And then in the interim, I come in with the premises and Arthur looks the premises over and he goes, well, you know, they're close enough. I mean, he's, he's clearly got the ability to tell a story and he leaves the premises on Lou's desk. So when Lou comes back from Hawaii, he's got my premises sitting on his desk. And Lou called up Arthur and said, uh, you know, I really don't know who we should hire. If we should hire the guy who wrote the short stories or the guy who wrote the premises. And Arthur said, they're the same guy. And Lou said, get him. And Uh so Arthur said, would you like to write, you know, uh, a script for us? And well, sure, absolutely. So this is maybe April, early May of uh, 78. I wrote a script for a show called, no, geez, Starlight and Moonlight, Starlight and Sunlight, Bright, something like that. Um, Jebusite and Amalekite, I can't remember, but (laughs) The, the premise was there were two twin sisters, one of whom got her powers from uh, her superpowers from the night, the other one who got her superpowers from the daytime. And uh, so, of course, obviously, you've got to do stories where the, the switchover is crucial to what's happening. And that proved a very difficult show for people to come up with ideas for. And even though I wrote a script for them that they bought, they ended up canceling the show before it even went into production. So um, it never, it never went anywhere, but I at least got my foot in the door. And after I I wrote the first script and they saw that I could write uh, fast and well enough to be edited because I was terrible in those days. I'm going to be honest. Um, um, I had, I had a story editor, um, Len Jansen, um, who worked at Filmation, get so ticked off at me one time, he tried to smash my head against the wall with a coat rack. And I have to say, he was justified, okay? He's, he was not He was not being unreasonable at that point. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we, 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 had, we had stuff going on at Filmation. Uh, anyway, um, I, got, I got the gig writing for Filmation. And when fall came around, uh, and most of the other people were put on hiatus. Uh, they said to me, you know, we'd like you to stay and develop story ideas for us. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm making a living. I'm paying my rent. Um, I'm, I'm taking care of my family. I'll, I'll put off um, college until next year. Next year never came. Wow. Wow. So you and never ended up, you were accepted in the USC and never ended up going. Never ended up going. In. No. Wow. That is, that is. <laughs> so back then film, filmation had um, a, they were a production company that would sell shows to, I guess back then it was just the networks. What is, was it just CBS, NBC, ABC? Yeah. Back then? yeah. And, and so they would sell shows. So they were selling live action and, animated right and um and so when you uh sort of developing stuff with them what was the transition from live action to animation for you well the the transition occurred uh before i got there and i never got a chance to write live action for them i i was 
at one time in the live action studio because they needed space for animators in the uh, um, the regular studio. But uh, I never got a chance to write live action for them. Um, but I, I I hung around with Arthur and uh, all of the the people working there. They had figured out a way of doing inexpensive um, action adventure shows on Saturday morning. Yep. They did ISIS. They did Shazam. Yep. Uh, a friend of mine, Michael Reeves, um, came up with the brilliant idea that ISIS could make things not happen. So, you know, she would show up, the dam's going to burst. And she would go, damn, don't burst. And, you know, it's like, there's any number of things you can stop from happening, you know. And, it's like the and, it's the like the invincible invisible monsters from Forbidden Planet. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they they loved Michael. I mean, they they'd hire Michael, come in and and have as many things not happen as you can think of. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. But they they did these shows on a low budget, but they did them with a sense of a, a sense of style, and they did them with a sense of um, there was depth to them. It wasn't just knocking out a uh, pointless action adventure. The, the one thing that Filmation had going for it in those days, um, they got their start when CBS wanted to do, uh, I think it was CBS, wanted to do a Superman animated show. And they approached Hanna-Barbera and Hanna-Barbera said, you know, our plate is full. We can't we can't put another show in production. And Lou Scheimer was working as a background artist for um, Hanna-Barbera at that time. And Lou heard about this and he approached CBS and said, I can put a studio together and we can do, um, you know, the Superman show for you. And he partnered up with Norm Prescott and I want to say Dan Christensen. I may be wrong here, so don't hold that, you know, don't hold that as as uh, uh, authoritative information. But anyway, they put together Filmation Studios. Norm Norm was an old radio guy who, uh, when I say radio, I mean DJ guy, who um, uh, got into voiceovers and uh, had actually produced an animated film separate from Norm. He did uh, Pinocchio in Space. Um, and so they got together. It's not a bad movie, actually. I mean, when you when you look at it as a cheap 1960s animated feature, right. you go, okay, you know, for what it is, it's not bad. That's great. Uh, anyway, they they put together the um, uh, Superman show, and they were notorious for uh, they were they were determined to make money at every stage of production. Mm -hmm. Hanna-Barbera did what was called deficit financing. The studio would give them, I mean, the, the network would give them a quarter million dollars to do an episode that would really cost a half million. So they would go out and find a bank and they would borrow a half million to do that episode. Then the hope was at some point in the future, you sell it as a syndication package and you make your money back that way. Got it. Normally will work, but sometimes you get a really terrible show and, and it doesn't and you end up losing money. Lou, and, and God bless him, Lou was, was a union guy. Even though he ran the studio, he was a union guy. 
He insisted on using union talent, but on keeping the budget so low, they would make a profit even off a quarter million dollar budget. And so they used every trick in the book to keep the, the costs down. I mean, just ridiculous stuff. You look at it now and it's, it's funny to see just what the cost saving things they were doing. Um, when they did the Archie show, almost all the dialogue was shot over the, the back shoulder of whoever was talking. So here's, here's Archie talking to Mr. Weatherby. And then you cut like this, and here's Mr. Weatherby answering Archie. You never see their lips moving. You only see the person <laughs> they're talking to. You don't have to animate uh, the lips moving. That's good. Yeah. And uh, when they did the Star Trek animated show, they would oh, come yes. into these tight close-ups of eyes so they don't have to show mouths moving. That's and, the reason why. The, I, I remember those tight shots. <laughs> and... Um, uh, they they loved characters with masks because then you don't have to do uh, you know lip syncing, and they would go through and they would storyboard action scenes and they would give the writers these big thick notebooks of action scenes and say when you're writing a script go through and call out specific um, action scenes that we've got animated and we will use them again. I wrote one episode of uh, Brave Star, and I've never seen any other episode of Brave Star. And I'm sure it's a good show. I know people who worked on it. I I am not putting it down, but I know if I see a second episode of Brave Star, I'm going to realize how much same as animation was in my episode, and it's yes. going to disappoint me. So yeah. I only have watched my episode of Brave Star, and I'm going, hey. Pretty good, you know. I like that. All right, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you how pathetic I am, uh, Buzz. I watched way too much television when I was a kid. I can sing to you the Brave Star theme song, um, and my my favorite thing about Brave Star. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm going to save you and the audience that. But 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 the theme song um, was all his animal powers, right? Yeah. So eyes like a hawk. So Brave Star. Eyes like a hawk. Ears like a wolf. Brave star, strength of a bear. And then the one that always made me laugh, even as a kid, is he it wasn't the speed of a cheetah, it was the speed of a puma. And I I always wondered why did they go with the puma? <laughs> that might, the cheetah. might have been hopes for a tie-in. I mean, there was a puma brand uh, shoe at that. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's my brave heart connection. Hey, um yeah. So, so when you so so here you are writing for film uh, filmation and um man yeah boy they turned out a, a lot what was your first professional screenwriting credit that that aired ah geez um it would have been a segment of a show called tarzan and the super seven which no matter how you count the configuration does not equal seven um they they had their Tarzan show and they edited it down from a half hour to a 20 minute episode so they could add other segments. It was like an hour long show. And I think um, Space Academy premiered on this too. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Space Academy might've been 
It might have been Space Academy, or it might have been the serial version of Jason of Star Command, because they did a, a uh, live-action serial. In any case, um, I wrote um, a freedom, at least one Freedom Force episode. I wrote a couple of um, Manta and Moray and Super Stretch and Micro Woman episodes. I wrote a Web Woman episode. And we would get sued like nobody's business because Marvel and DC, once they found out we were doing these shows, they double teams and they sued um, Web Woman, claiming that uh, it, we were infringing on Spider-Man and Black Widow. And they actually had a point because her original costume looked a lot like Black Widow's costume at that time. So we had to change it from from a a logical looking quasi commando outfit into this ridiculous fishnet stockings and tights thing that that was on the air. Um, super. So that, that's so much more acceptable to put the woman in the fishnet. Exactly. Stockings. Yeah. <laughs> super stretch and micro woman got sued by DC because they said we were we were emulating uh, the atom and the elongated man. I totally remember that. That they, they, I think they would show that on some other when I later on. I totally remember that show, Super Stretch and Mike. Yeah, and and Marvel sued because they said uh, you're 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 ripping off Ant Man and Mister Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Marvel and DC both sued over Manton Moray. Marvel saying you're you're ripping off Namor, and DC <laughs> saying you're ripping off Aquaman. And I told Lou, I said, for heaven's sakes, just tell Marvel and DC's lawyers, decide which one of you is getting ripped off, and we'll we'll take the, the winner on. Now, now help help our audience understand. So back back then, I mean it's still today, but they do it differently now because but um if I remember correctly, and please correct where I'm where I'm not remembering right, but Back then, the the networks were required uh, to put X amount of, I, I don't know if it was through the FCC or something, but they were required to put uh, X amount of hours on television that were considered educational or for children. Exactly. And so yeah. the Saturday morning, so what, so they would basically just hire companies like Hanna-Barbera and Filmation to just create blocks of TV for them. So the reason why, like you're talking about, the reason why there were so many different characters is that Filmation would literally have four hours on CBS that yep. they had to fill and they would just rotate through characters that worked or didn't work. And, yep. and it, but, but literally they had a block they had to fill oh, yeah. Yeah. that they were contracted by, by CBS, ABC or NBC. And they, and they had all these different shows on all these different characters and some hit and some didn't. And they would just kind of keep, Rotating through, but it was the networks didn't produce it themselves because they didn't care. They just were trying to fulfill their requirement. Is that right? Right. Almost never did a network uh, directly produce a show for for Saturday morning. There are a few exceptions, but they're not you know significant. Uh, they they would certainly put pressure on a studio to do a certain type of program, a certain type of way, but they they. Uh, they rarely got their hands dirty actually doing the production themselves. 
we had, as I said, we had a, a real problem at Filmation with just getting sued by people left and right. And one, one of the examples was kind of heartbreaking to me. There used to be a comic strip called Tumbleweeds done by a guy named T.K. Ryan. And Tumbleweeds was just this really funny, really witty takeoff on um, uh, Old West tropes. I mean, it was just, it was every Old West cliche parody you could imagine. And I I loved the comic strip. I was a big fan of it. And Lou sold a show to NBC called uh, The Fabulous Funnies, which, to be perfectly honest, was neither. <laughs> <laughs> and most of the stuff he had was, like, really old. I mean, it was like the Cats and Jammer Kids, Alley Oop. Um, Nancy and Sluggo. Um, he got Broomhilda and he also got, he said, um, tumbleweeds. And when I found out he had tumbleweeds, I, I immediately campaigned. I said, I love this comic strip. Let me do it. Let me write it. And I figured out a way of including the Native American characters into it because even at that time, uh, Lou would not hire someone to do an ethnic voice if they weren't that ethnic person. And about the only ethnic actor anybody knew in Hollywood at that time for Native Americans was um, Iron Eyes Cody, which, if you know, was not a Native American. He was Sicilian descent, but he really loved the Native American people. He he became, you know, um, I won't say he was delusional, but he certainly embraced that culture. He championed for their rights and protection. And as I recall, at least two tribes formally adopted him as a blood brother and, and oh, wow. to the tribe because of all the work he had done. But yeah, he was Sicilian. He was not um, he was not Native American, but he would be the only person that they could afford if they were going to do a Native American voice. And uh, so they didn't want to have any Native American characters in Tumbleweed. And I said, well, you've got two characters in the strip who are mute. They never say anything. You got this big guy, Bacolic Buffalo. And then you've got uh, this little scrawny guy called Lots of Luck. And Lots of Luck would write notes and hand them to people in the strip. And once they realized, well, Buzz knows this and he can include the Native American characters in a way that we don't have to hire an extra voice. They gave me all the scripts to write. So I I was I was in hog heaven. I was going to do at least four scripts for Tumbleweeds. And um, we I, I had written the first two scripts. The first episode had been animated. Uh, when the show premiered, it was on um, that morning. And he, his Tumbleweeds face was in the lineup. And Monday, we got a call from T.K. Ryan's lawyer saying, Mr. Ryan really liked the episode. He's just wondering why you never got a contract with him. Because apparently what had happened, um, Lou's lawyer had contacted Ryan and said, we'd like to do a, a Tumbleweeds animated show. And Ryan said, OK, send me a storyboard so I can see what you're going to do with it. And if I like it, I'll say yes. And the lawyer just went, he said yes. And huh never followed up. And so we, we we animated and aired a show that we had no rights to. Um and and that was a disappointment because I was I was having fun doing it. But um 
you know, it, it got yanked. So, man, that's, yeah, that's, I, I can't imagine doing all that work. And then, but, but it was a little bit of the wild, wild west back then, I guess. Yeah. Because they had to put out so much and they were so used to getting sued by Marvel and DC probably oh, yeah. that weren't that worried. You, so your, your career is pretty varied in terms of, I uh, mentioned that earlier, you've written on so many shows can you explain what the process was for writing for? I mean, because literally, like, I mean, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Dungeons and Dragons, Scooby Doo, Thundar the Barbarian, Heathcliff, of course, GI Joe, Mister T. I love. I remember that show. Oh my gosh! Of course, Transformers, GI Joe. Um, were were what was the process for writing animation back then? Were you working for filmation or were um, uh, were you uh, writing stuff on spec, would you get called and say, "Hey, we need," uh, what, what, uh, as opposed to say a writers' room where you would sit around with a bunch of writers? How did it work? Did it vary from show to show, or or what was the process like in in writing for all these TV shows? Well, the answer to those questions is yes. <laughs> it um, every show that I got involved in, I got involved in a different way. And um, nonetheless, there was a great deal of overlap. Um, I worked two years at Filmation and then they had a dry spell and they couldn't keep as many people on for hiatus as they wanted to. And so they turned me loose and they said, uh, stay in touch, we'll wanna hire you back when we, we go back in production. And I was trying to find work, you know, to keep, uh, you know, the roof over our heads. And someone said, well, why don't you try um, Ruby Spears? They're a, a struggling young company and they're trying to get scripts written. So I, you know, contacted Ruby Spears. I forget who the story editor was at the time, but um, I had, uh, they gave me the, the show Bible on, um, I think it was Dingbat and the Creeps. I may be mistaken. It might have been Mighty Man that. and Yuck. Might have been Mighty Man and Yuck. But in any case, they gave me a, a, a Bible and said, come up with some ideas. And so I came up with a couple of ideas. And they said, okay, this one will work. And they bought it from me. And I wrote it as a freelance script. And they said, you got any more? And I said, well, give me, give me a chance. And I wrote a few more. I think I wrote around three or four as a freelancer. And then they said, well, you know, we're going to be gearing up soon for regular season production. Do you want to come on board as a, a, you know, staff writer? So I agreed. And then Lou called me and said, uh, you know, I'd like to have you come back. And I said, well, you know, Ruby Spears is offering me this much money. Can you meet it or beat it? And he said, no, I can't do that. I'm sorry. You know, best of luck. And he you know, let me go, which is unfortunately for Lou, what happened with a lot of his talent, yeah. um, you know, they used to say filmation was where, you know, it was for people on their way in or their way out of the industry. It was, yeah. it was either newbies who were learning the ropes and who would soon go on to bigger and better things, or it was old guys who were burned out and that was the best they could do. Um, Anyway, I, I ended up on staff at uh, Ruby Spears. I think the first staff writing I did was for Mighty Man and Yuck. Uh, I met Steve Gerber there because they brought Steve Gerber on board. 
Steve was in the middle of his lawsuit against uh, Marvel Comics. He was trying to, to claim ownership of Howard the Duck. And Steve was doing a comic book called Destroyer Duck, which was um, uh, one of the earliest self-funded independent black and white comics. Excuse me, it wasn't black and white. It was full color. My goodness, I'm, I'm misremembering here. It was a full color comic. And uh, he was using that to fund his lawsuit against Marvel. And Steve, and I'm not, I'm not speaking ill of him here because Steve and I were great friends, but the truth is Steve frequently had deadline problems. And on more than one occasion, he would call friends up and say, can you help me out and, you know, move things down the block? And he, he said to me at one point, he said, I've got to finish the script for this issue. And we've got Jack Kirby, you know, drawing it. I need you to write a two page fight scene for Jack to draw while I'm finishing the rest of the script, wow. you know? And so I go, okay, sure. I write a two page fight scene. And uh, I, I tell people my first job in comics, I was, I, I wrote, I wrote something that Jack Kirby illustrated and it's been downhill ever since, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I wrote this thing for Jack uh, didn't meet Jack at that time, but I wrote it for him. And then, um, excuse me, strike that. I had met Jack at that time. I had met Jack. I'll tell that story in a moment. Okay. In any case, I'm, I'm on staff. Uh, we're developing ideas. We're writing scripts. Um, somebody came up with the idea of Thundar the Barbarian. <laughs> I, just, just somebody. I love it. Well, here's the thing. Um, Joe would say very concretely i came up with the idea and i believe joe probably had the germ of the idea steve would argue no i came up with the the general shape of it once we decided to do a barbarian in the future story i crafted it as to what it would be with input from people like Marty Pasco and Mark Evanier, who, who all had been in the room when the development was going on. Marty was the guy who contributed the name Ookla for- Yes, Ookla, yes. Yeah, because, because when Marty was in Paris, um, young Parisians kept asking him, well, where do I get an Ookla shirt? U-C-L-A. <laughs> That's the origin for Ookla. I had no idea. And uh, <laughs> uh, I was I was there, but I wasn't involved in the immediate genesis of Thundar. But once the the general idea was developed, and once they got to go ahead to do more formal development on it, uh, Joe had a big meeting. All the writers came in, the, the heads of the uh, storyboard and design departments came in. And um, we're, we're discussing the show. And Steve said, I know a guy who would be perfect, you know, to design the show. He said, let me let me call him and I'll bring him in and we'll, you know, get him involved. And so we had a meeting scheduled for the next week or a few days later. Uh, a big meeting where we were all going to get together and just hammer out all the details of the show. So uh, when the meeting comes around, I come in and into the conference room 
And John Dorman, who was the head of the storyboard department, was already in the conference room, and he's talking to this little old man. And I tell people, uh, you heard the expression that somebody's eyes were twinkling. This is the only person I've ever met whose eyes literally were twinkling all the time. I mean, just you could see like ideas sparking behind them. And so I come in and John doesn't introduce us, you know, to each other. And I figure, well, you know, when the meeting starts, we'll probably all go around the table and introduce ourselves. So I didn't get, you know, uh, I didn't get, uh, you know, concerned about it. And gradually, one by one, everybody drifts in until finally uh, Joe shows up and we sit down and there's no introductions. Everybody just, you know, starts contributing to the meeting. And the little old guy and I struck it off really well because I could tell right away he had great ideas. He was plussing stuff. He was developing, you know, just verbally developing stuff and showing how you could expand things and this and that. And uh, I, I recognized, wow, this, this is going to be a really cool show working on it with this guy because he's, he's really on top of things. And so the meeting goes on for about an hour or so. And then, uh, you know, Joe says, OK, well, the, the writers will go and start developing scripts. And, uh, you know, you guys in the art department, you go start designing stuff and we'll meet again next week and, you know, continue from there. So I went into Steve's room after Steve's office after the meeting and I said, you know, I, I'm really fired up about this show. It sounds like it's going to be tons of fun. I said, but who was the little old guy in the room? Nobody ever introduced us. And Steve said, that was Jack Kirby. Wow. Wow. And if I had known it was Jack Kirby, my contribution to the meeting would have been. <laughs> I, you know, this was back before the Internet. And I I knew Jack Kirby by reputation, had no idea what he looked like. So, so Jack Kirby is somewhat responsible for the look and design of Thundar as well. He is responsible for like 90% of the design. Uh, Alex wow. Toth, I had no idea. Alex Toth and Doug Wildey did the initial designs on the characters. And uh, you can you can find their stuff online. You'll look at it. And, and both of them did Thundar, Ariel, and Ookla in their personal styles. But, you know, you can tell it's the same character. Jack came on board and started doing all the incidental characters, all the backgrounds, all the, the supporting characters and weapons and vehicles and everything else. We did a, a um, script where in one scene um, I, had, I had written that uh, Ariel, Ukla, and Thundar cross a river on a raft ferry. You know, you've, you've seen these in Western movies. Somebody makes a raft. They've got yeah. a rope strung across the river and you just pull your way across. And so I describe a raft ferry and Jack designs it. He comes back with the deck of an aircraft carrier on top of a raft of sequoia logs. <laughs> and I took one look at this and I say, no, we are not wasting this as a throwaway background detail. I am building an entire script around this this uh, this vehicle here, and wow. that became the genesis of a script called Treasure of the Mox. Wow! Because uh, I put a pirate captain and her crew on it, and they're looking for the mock treasure, and they're going up and down the river. I mean, it was, you know, Jack did this all the time. 
you'd ask him, uh, yeah, give give the guy, you know, some weird weapon. And he would come back with something that was just like mind boggling. And huh. he just knocked this stuff off. I mean, it was just astonishing. Um, in any case, Ruby Spears, for about a three-year period, had what was widely regarded as the best story department in the business. And I'm not saying this to brag uh, because I was part of it, but we just had top-notch people. We had uh, Steve Gerber as story editor. There was myself, there was Gary Greenfield, um, Norman Maurer. I mean, there was just a lot, excuse me, not Norman Maurer. Norman was a director, Uh, Michael Maurer, his son. we just had a lot of really good people working there. Jack Anyart. Um, and you guys would all do multiple shows. So when you say, oh, the yeah. story, when you say the story department, uh, just give us a rough idea. How many shows was that story compart- story department contributing to? It depended on <clears throat> it depended upon the season because some seasons we would have shows that might have three different segments, and so. Instead of 13 episodes, you're really writing 39 segments because each one was independent of one another. Um, other show, other seasons, we might have only two shows on the air and you'd only do a handful of, of episodes. Um, so like you wouldn't, so uh, I'm trying to remember, was Thundar a 21, 22-minute show, or was it like an 11, two 11-minute it was. It was uh, a half-hour show. It was in a half-hour slot. It may have gotten trimmed down at some point in reruns so they could squeeze an extra public service announcement in or something like that. But it was, it was always meant as a half-hour show when we were writing it. Okay. And you would break it out as... Uh, with commercials, would that be like a five act? Yeah, yeah. Were we all would, your shows written in five acts? Uh, no, three acts. Three acts. Or three. You would do three. So you, you wouldn't cons- consider them between each commercial break. You would just be uh, each. Or there were only there were only two commercial breaks. Um, I seem to recall that we had three commercial breaks. I know definitely in the Sunbow material we had three com- two commercial breaks. Three acts, two commercial breaks separating the acts. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I, now you got me wondering. I can't remember if Thundar was two acts separated by a commercial or if it was uh, three acts separated by commercials. But basically, you knew you had only X amount of time to tell a story. And with animation writing, at that time, we were doing what was called directing on paper. Mm hmm where the writer would break the scene down for the storyboard department, literally movement by movement, uh, camera goes in, camera comes out, this character does that, uh, uh, and and call every shot close up on this, far angle. And you literally had to visualize the entire story in your head and and break it down for the, the storyboard department. So our scripts would be twice as long as a uh, live action script of similar length. If you did a um, half hour action adventure show in live action, it would have run about 22, 24 pages at that time. Thundar scripts typically ran about 44 pages. Wow. And, And explain to our audience, what was the animation process back then? Like how long 
from the, by the time you turned in a script to the time it aired on television, what was the, what was the time um, that took? When, when all cylinders were firing smoothly, we could get a show back in six weeks time. Oh, wow. Six weeks. Okay. But this means we already had a lot of um, same as animation. Even in Thundar, you'll notice they jump over the same tree every yes. episode. Yes. Uh, we had a lot of same as animation. We had a lot of, of, of stock animation that we could reuse again and again. Um, we had a good design team that could, uh, you know, design characters. We had a great storyboard department. I, ca I cannot overemphasize John Dorman ran one of the best storyboard departments I've ever seen anywhere. And, and John, John was a wild man. Let me explain this. I mean, it's, it, when, you, when you realize how good the stuff was and you realize how chaotic the office, the, the storyboard department was. But uh, Jim Woodring, who is, is now famous as a, um, you know, alternate comics guy, you know, he does the, the Frank books. Uh, Jim Woodring was a friend of John's, and he and he worked with John in the storyboard department. We had guys like Kurt Connor and Dan Reba, uh, just tons of people working there. And I was one of the few writers who actually went down and talked with the storyboard artists and found out from them what made a script good for them. Because a lot of times people would write stuff and then the storyboard artists are going, oh, crap, how are we going to how are we going to draw this? How will we depict it? Um, and I went down and I would say, well, what what do you guys need? What makes your job easier? And they would give me advice. Yeah. Write scenes that we can do this instead of, you know, more difficult and cumbersome way of doing things. Um, I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit. I'll tell you a story about. Um, a show called Turbo Team. Yes, Turbo Team. I totally yeah, remember. I, I dodged the bullet on that one. I, I was on Turbo Team for all the 15 minutes. And, and Joe. And just so people who don't know, and I'm sure there's some people out there. I know a couple of friends of mine that, that we joke about Turbo Team. Turbo Team was a, literally a show about a teenage boy who would transform, was it because of water? I can't remember what, he would transform into a, a race car, basically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> very interesting concept. I, I, this actually, the, the, the Turbo Teen story actually tries, ties into Transformers, but specifically for John, uh, I went over to see him one time for lunch and he and the storyboard department were just sitting there glowering. And um, I'll, I'll clean up the language here a little bit. Uh, and I won't mention the name of the person responsible. But John went, God, drink, Joe Blow. And they all started pounding their desk. You know. Joe Blow had written a Turbo Teen script where Turbo Teen, as a car, climbs up on a high diving board, jumps up and down on the board as a car, executes a jackknife, dives into the pool, swims over to a rowboat, 
in the pool as a car, climbs into the rowboat as a car, and they were expected to draw this. And that is why they were cursing Joe Blow for having written such a script. Um, because nothing had been drawn like that before. So everything no, no. I mean, And what, how do you draw a car diving into water? Yeah. I got I gotta say, uh, John, I, I, I loved him like a brother. He was one of the original wild men of animation. I mean, he was he was bonkers, I gotta be honest. But he was brilliant. He did great storyboards. Um uh, but but he and his crew were frequently chemically enhanced. And I think for shows like Turbo Teen, that was a necessity. That was a necessity for Turbo Teen. I mean, even as a kid, I'm watching Turbo Teen going, this is ridiculous. All right. You, some of the episodes are on YouTube. And I, I, oh. I invite people to try to watch an entire one because you get about like five minutes into it and you're going, Nothing in this makes any sense at all. Yes, thinking up, and I and I remember thinking of that as like a ten year old or however it was I was. Yeah. Um, okay, you've done so many shows that I love. Uh, I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mister Alvin the Chipmunks. So there was this. Um, uh, but okay, so there was this transformational kind of moment in eighties. Uh, and I know you know so much of the backstory of all this stuff because you were part of it. That's why I want to I want to pick your brain on this. So there, and there's been some now there's been some documentaries. There's been some stuff that's kind of come out. So I'd love to just hear your perspective. So Transformers. So for me, it was like 1A, 1B was my favorite shows were Transformers and G.I. Joe. And they were back to back weekdays. And I, you know, memorized half the episodes of all of them because, you know, back then they just went on repeat. And so um, uh, for people who are familiar with the Transformers, they decided to make a movie. And, you know, back they were, and just a reminder, all cartoons are back, back then and even now, they're all about selling toys, right? They're all about moving merchandise. And so Transformers wanted to, they make a movie. And uh, I've, I've watched the little documentary on the making of it, which is hilarious because the director, I don't know if you've seen it, Buzz, but the director of the Transformers, the movie, uh, is like this Japanese guy. And he, um, like to him, it was like a paycheck. And he does not understand, even in the documentary, you can tell, why am I being interviewed about this stupid movie that I did? But in his mind, wasn't even that good. And you can just tell that he is just like, why am I? But, you know, it's a, all these shows are so beloved now by people. Um, well, so there was a controversy for us fans. I was there opening weekend. I forced my sister, my older sister, to take me to the movie theater and watch the Transformers movie. And we all were shocked when Optimus Prime dies. Spoiler alert, alert there. And, um, and literally, like, all of us kids are, why, why would you do that? And and the Transformers show just bombs after that. It just has a huge effect on it because everyone's like, why would you do that? So in the meantime, I know that G.I. Joe is talking about making a movie. And then they see the response. So take us back to, because you were connected to all these people. So um, when the Transformers movie came out, so my first question to you is, when the... Was there already talk of doing the G.I. Joe movie before the Transformers movie came yes. out? 
Yes. And 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 talk a little bit about. Uh, so that's the thing too. Yeah, you're not you're you're the writer of the GI Joe movie, but your credit and you can tell that story later too. Your credit doesn't necessarily reflect that, but you're the writer of the GI Joe. Movie. So talk a little bit about the connection between the Transformers movie and the GI Joe movie, and then I'd love to talk to you about the specific. Well, if if you don't mind, we're going to backtrack to uh, Ruby Spears because Ruby yeah. Spears is where the first domino starts falling that leads to Transformers and GI Joe. Um, what had happened was in the 1960s there was a show called Hot Wheels. And uh, a parents group complained to the FCC about it, saying it was just a half hour commercial for the toy. The FCC agreed and they issued a ban that there could be no toy based cartoon shows. You could have a cartoon based on a literary property, but you couldn't have one based on a toy. Um, Jump ahead about 15 years and the Smurfs reach American shores as these little tchotchkes, keychains, good luck charms, stuff like that. They oh, yeah. Really popular. There was a woman at my there was a woman at my church who had an entire room an entire room in her house of little Smurf figures. It was crazy. Yeah, they were huge. Nobody in America knew their origin. Nobody knew where and how they were created. They were they were actually called, I think, Strumps or something like that. They were a Belgian comic book. But the toys hit America and they boom, big, huge, profitable thing. And I think it was NBC said, gosh, if only we could do a, a Smurfs cartoon show. And someone said, well, it's based on a Belgian comic book. And they said, oh, really? So they put the show into production. The FCC, you can't do that. And they say, oh, no, no, look, Belgian comic book. See, it originated here. The FCC goes, okay, all right, fine. You know, you're allowed to do it. So now other people are looking at their properties. And the strawberry shortcake people say, well, does greeting cards count as literary property? And the FCC goes, well, printed <laughs> on paper. Yeah, okay, sure. They count as printed property. Well, all right, now we got Strawberry Shortcake. So they yeah. do the Strawberry Shortcake series. Um, and at that point, Mattel and Hasbro both go, oh, all it takes is a comic book. So Mattel approaches DC and they do the He-Man Masters of the Universe comic, a three-part uh, miniseries which bears no resemblance at all to the show that got on the air. But at least, at least let them say, we've, we've got a comic book it's based on. Marvel, um, Hasbro went to Marvel. They got Larry Hama to create the G.I. Joe series for him at Marvel, the comic. I forget who the uh, team was behind Transformers, but they got Transformers going. While all this is happening, Hasbro is also coming out to Los Angeles and talking with every animation company because the end game is to get a Transformers and G.I. Joe TV series on the air. And I was at the time the giant robot bug, you might say, because every studio I worked for, I was championing, you know, we got to do a giant robot show. They're, they're big in Japan. They've, they've got huge followings. We've, you know, this is something kids will like, giant robots. And everybody, buzz your nuts, shut up, go away. 
So anyway, Joe calls us into a meeting, Joe Ruby, and the Hasbro guys are there and they've got this suitcase and they open it up and it is filled with Transformers because they had they had bought the licensing rights to like three or four lines of transforming toys in Japan. <clears throat> and they were going to mix and match them and they were going to rename them and all this stuff. And they just had this suitcase full of transforming robot toys. And I'm sitting there trying to keep from bursting out with excitement, you know, and they're talking with Joe. And uh, in the end, they, you know, they, the meeting ends, they close the suitcase, they walk off with it. And they are barely out of the building. When I say to Joe, we have got to do this show. It is going to be huge. It's going to be great. It's, it's going to be tremendous. You have got to get this show. And Joe goes, nah, I got a better idea. We're going to do a show about a teenage boy who turns into a car. <laughs> and uh, as I said, I, I lasted about 15 minutes on that show because <laughs> when when Joe got a Bible developed for it, he called us in for a writer's meeting. He gave us all copies of the Bible. He said, go back, read the, the Bible, and then start developing ideas. I got about halfway through the Bible. I tossed it in the trash can. I came back to Joe's office and I said, Joe, I'll develop ideas for you, but you got to explain a few things to me. If the kid is a car and they take the wheels off, if he turns back into a kid, is he missing his hands and feet? If the kid is a car and they take the battery out, if he turns back into a kid, is he uh, missing his heart? If the kid is a car and they put a suitcase in the trunk, when he turns back into a kid and Joe goes, I'm putting you on another show. <laughs> so anyway, we are going to jump ahead now. Um, <laughs> we we uh, Ruby Spears, as I said, had what was regarded at the time as the best story department. But for reasons not related to Joe and Ken, they lost that storyboard department in about like three weeks time. They, they had somebody who uh, worked under them, who managed to piss off the entire story department in, in a single afternoon. And we were like all on our phones, calling our agents, you know, get me a gig somewhere else. Wow. So this person basically hamstrung Ruby Spears by, uh, by alienating all the writers in but that's a different story for another time. Anyway, Steve Gerber ended up working on um, Dungeons and Dragons. And I said to Steve, because we were friends, I said, can I, can I pitch to the show? And he said, well, you know, they, they seem to be closed. Um, I don't think you can get in, but, you know, here's the person to contact. So I contacted them. And as a courtesy, because I, you know, had been working in the business as a courtesy they they let me come in and pitch a story even though they were full at the time and i pitched a story called quest of the skeleton warrior which personally i regard as a turning point in my own writing because it was the first time i wrote about a villain who was a sympathetic villain who had an understandable motive mm. and um, you couldn't hate him. You 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 go, well, we got to oppose him, but we understand perfectly well why he's doing this. Mm. He's not acting out of selfish, irrational reasons. And they liked it so much, they made space for it in the uh, original series. And um, I ended up, you know, being one, of, as a result, ended up being one of the writers on the original Dungeons and Dragons show. 
I remember that show really well because it was a, it was a late. Okay, so this is once again, this is what you get when you're someone like me who watched way too much. Is you could watch the pattern of the shows on Saturday morning. They would get the later in the Saturday morning it would go. It'd be more for older kids. Exactly. And um, and Dungeons and Dragons was on CBS, and it was their it was their late show that would. I think they paired it with uh, the CBS um, uh, storybook time or whatever yeah. that eventually went over to ABC, uh, which was usually more uh, t- tween, tween yeah. or teen themed or whatever. Dungeons and Dragons was good storytelling. It was also really good animation. It was slightly yeah. different animation than uh, even the earlier shows yeah. too. The quality of animation and the quality of the, of the writing, I distinctly, it stood out to me as being, I, I don't know if I want to use the word more mature, but it definitely had a different uh, quality to it. Would that be the correct way to say it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it it was a step up in quality all the way around. I was very happy to be involved in it. And as I said, it it I view it as a personal stepping stone where we move, I moved up as a writer, one notch in being able to, to write uh, stories about characters who are a lot more complex than the typical, you know, supervillain that you encounter. Uh, in any case, from there, I, I freelanced around a little bit, and Steve ended up being hired to story edit uh, the G.I. Joe TV series. Now, by this time, they had already done the two, uh, the first two uh, miniseries that Ron Friedman had written. And uh, as I mentioned, Ron had a really good agent. The um, animation writers were not protected by the Writers Guild. And as a result, uh, there was no arbitration on final credits. And Ron, by the way, Ron is a wonderful guy. We're friends. I have no animosity. Don't read anything into this, please. Ron's agent got him a deal where if he wrote the first draft of something, his name would be the only name on the script. And, you know, that agent did exactly what an agent is supposed to do, represented the best interests of his client. So, you know, I'm not blaming Ron for anything. So please don't don't read anything into this. (laughs) But Ron wrote two, uh, the first two um, miniseries. And I had seen them on television. And if you remember, these are the ones where, you know, tanks are split in half by jets swooping down and slicing them with their wingtips. And you've got sergeants giving orders to colonels and things like this. And when Steve got assigned the story editor position, I uh, I contacted him and Steve said, well, you know, we've, we've already staffed up. We've already got uh, staff writers and we're not taking freelance submissions right now. Um, so, but if if I could, would you look at a couple of scripts and just give me some feedback? Because he knew I had been in the army for six years. So I looked at him and I gave him, you know, read him over and I made some notes and gave him back. And and basically I said, well, you know, the the people writing these don't understand how a military unit functions on a day to day basis. They don't understand the chain of command. Uh, there's a lot of technical stuff that is really wildly wrong in what they're doing, um, you know, and 
but you know, best of luck. I hope you know. I hope it works because they got some interesting characters. Steve called Sunbow and said, uh, you know, we really ought to hire Buzz as a technical advisor because he was in the army. He knows animation. He, you know, he's a good person to have on this. And they said, well, we don't have any budget for uh, a tech writer. I mean, a tech uh, advisor, but we could squeeze in another staff writer. So I got, I ended up becoming a staff writer and the de facto um, assistant story editor almost immediately. And almost every script that was written there, you know, passed through my hands just to make sure, you know, there were no egregious mistakes in it. So but would that have been, would, I'm sorry, would that have been, what season would that have been? Because I know they did. First season. First season. So first season. So they did. Uh, I'm trying to remember the miniseries. Was it like the Weather Machine one or yeah, something like yeah. that? So they did a couple of those, and then that's when you came in. Okay. Yeah, and then I I was I was doing. Uh, I think we did 65 half hour episodes. We did not write down. We never wrote down to to our audience, mm-hmm. and I think the reason. Ruby Spears had a reputation of having the best story department was that we were we were striving to write up and and frequently our stuff would be edited down by somebody but we were always writing at a at a higher level than uh than this, the studios required this was my I completely agree this was my theory as a as a fan right so as a fan of the genre of animation that you were at at its peak, right? I I used to me the reason why Transformers and GI Joe worked was because it worked at two different levels as opposed to He Man. Yep. He Man, which I also watched, He Man uh, worked at a toy level better than it worked as a show level. Mm-hmm. Um, Trans both both Transformers and GI Joe had something over He Man, and that was their toy lines were super impressive, but and and diverse and really interesting, and you you could get really excited about the characters that they were creating in the toys. But then the shows themselves, separate from the toys, were just also fun and great to watch and engaging, and had a depth of storytelling that was different. Did, am I am I off base here? But that, no, you are absolutely you are absolutely right because one of one of the blessings in disguise for GI Joe was that when Marvel got the gig to do the GI Joe comic book, they handed it over to Larry Hama and they basically took their hands off. They just went, yeah, this is this is just bread and butter money for us. You know, we're not expecting anything of it. Yeah, do whatever you want. And uh, ironically, I think there was another show, um, uh, not uh, something about Jim, not not our Jim, but uh, Amherst or something like that. There was another uh, miniseries that Marvel did with um, a female magic character in it that was like really well written. And it was because, yeah, nobody's paying attention. It's this is just uh, a side gig. It's not our characters. We don't care. They hand it to Larry, and Larry also was a military vet, and Larry brought a level of sensibility to it that would not have gotten there with any other writer. And Larry was also an artist so that he could he could block these stories out. He could show how they should be done. 
And Larry just did a great job with the the G.I. Joe comic book. He also wrote the character bios that appeared on the backs of the cards. Oh, yeah. Uh What you see on the back of the card is about one third of the actual bio that that uh, Larry would write. We lucked out because Hasbro sent the full bios to us in in, um, in the, the show Bible. And so we had the, these insights onto this wide diversity of characters that Larry had created. Then on top of that, we're bringing our own sensibilities into it, our own experiences. Um, and everybody, um, everybody had a chance to use their own voice. We, we had a, a wide diversity of episodes because we had a wide diversity of writers. We had people with different interests, different points of view. Once we got the series underway, um, we had Transformers going 65 episodes. We had G.I. Joe going 65 episodes. We had at least one other show we were doing, which I think was a weekend show that was doing like 13 episodes. My Little Pony got introduced at some point in the proceedings. We at... At one point, I remember we just totaled up the number of episodes that we had to do in a specific period of time, in like a one-year period of time. And I think it was something like 160 episodes. And we were writing these things fast. Uh, Flint Dilly, who was was more of a Transformers writer than a Joe writer, though he did write several Joe episodes, Flint said, Flint said, you know, you fix the two things in a script that you hate the most. You put a bow tie on it and you kick it out the door. Um, every every day on, on whatever series you were working on, every day a finished script had to go through the door. It, you know, I, I likened it to a slow moving freight train. Mm. Every day, every day an open boxcar came by you and you had to throw something into that boxcar. And um, it it had to be finished. If it was good, that was even better. But it had to be finished. Now, how many of you? So, out of a hundred, how many people are writing a hundred and sixty plus episodes that year? It's it's hard to say because despite having a staff writing pool, we ended up using a lot of freelancers. I'm sure. Yeah, we had a few guys get burned out. We had a few people who were in production positions who would write scripts on the side as necessary. Um, Frequently, if you were writing for one show, you would get called to do another one. I mean, I I think my name is on three Transformers scripts, but I'm pretty sure I contributed to, to many more than that. I mean, at least at least six scripts I wrote or rewrote for Transformers, and my name isn't on them because my my point of view has always been: if I'm a story editor, it it's not my place to put my name on somebody else's script. Yeah, but so you're I'm, you're you're you had your hand on all of these scripts that were coming in and out yeah, as GI Joe, yeah, story editor yeah, for GI Joe. Yeah. Um, okay. So we we move ahead to the the year that they did the the My Little Pony Transformers and GI Joe movies, and Hasbro had struck a deal with Dino De Laurentiis Productions that Dino promised um, 
you will have three shows on Saturday and two shows on Sunday if you do an animated feature. So Hasbro thought, well, that's, you know, we can live with that. We can, that'll, that'll be good enough. Hasbro wanted to introduce new characters to My Little Pony, Transformers, and G.I. Joe. And in retrospect, they recognized it's a mistake to introduce new characters in a feature film because people coming to the feature film are coming to see the characters they already know and love. They don't want to be introduced to a brand new bunch. Introduce new characters in a regular season. You don't. We don't. We don't want you to just indiscriminately murder Ironhide, one of my, my, my favorite. Don't even give him a chance to say a line and replace him with all the... Yes, yeah, sorry. I'm not bitter or anything. I'm not no. bitter. It's been 30 years. Well, so. We, you know, we had the problem with G.I. Joe because uh, I, I think um, Major Blood is in the opening credits and he's in the background in one scene and that's yes. it. Yes. And I had to fight tooth and nail to give Shipwreck even a few lines. I mean, they were adamant they did not want to use Shipwreck. And I just I just hammered him in as hard as I could because I wasn't going to have a G.I. Joe movie that didn't have Shipwreck in it. Love Shipwreck. But um, what had happened was they, they had started three different scripts. Um, I, I forget. I should have looked up who wrote the uh, My Little Pony script, but uh, Ron wrote the first draft of the, the well, Ron wrote a first draft for a G.I. Joe movie. And Hasbro through Sunbow contacted me and said, uh, you know, your story editor, um, would you first, would you take a look at the My Little Pony script and give us some feedback? And basically, I just pointed out places where, you know, it would be good to have a song here about this sort of thing or that sort of thing. I mean, my my contribution was small. Um, I almost tied in My Little Pony with Transformers and G.I. Joe, because at one point, the little ponies are looking for help. And I wanted to have one of the little ponies fly to the Transformers base and ask them if they could help. And no, sorry. And then I wanted one to fly to G.I. Joe headquarters and, you know, um, shipwreck would be on the, the rear porch of the barracks drinking beer. And this little pony flies up, gee, mister, can you help us? And, you know, he's just looking in shock. And then as the pony flies off, he throws the beer away and takes the, the pledge not to drink again. Um, <laughs> and they shot that seed down. I, I, you know, okay. didn't get a chance to tie it in, but anyway, I, I gave some feedback on the, on the, my Little Pony movie, but I really, I no major contribution other than to suggest where songs could go. They gave me the G.I. Joe movie and said, would you, we want to talk with you about it, uh, read it on the airplane flying to New York, and then we'll have a talk here in New York. So I get on the airplane, I read it on the airplane. I have the meeting with them in New York and they say, well, what do you think we can do to fix this? And I said, I'll be brutally honest. I would advise throwing it out and starting from scratch. And I'm not saying this is a slam against Ron, but it it just didn't capture what the series had evolved into. I think Ron was was writing from what he remembered the show being when he was doing the miniseries. Uh, it had changed, obviously, by that point to something different. 
Now, did his version even address or deal with the origins of Cobra, like the eventual I film? cannot There's... recall. Okay. I do know that one character he created, Nemesis Enforcer, was a big hit with everybody. And they thought, well, if we're going to salvage anything, salvage, ne salvage Nemesis Enforcer, the guy with the wings and the... I love, uh, I love Nemesis Enforcer. I, yeah. I, that's like a term of endearment in my yeah. household, like with my kids, they know about Nemesis and especially well, that's, Meredith saying it. But that's anyway. Ron and give Ron all the credit. It was, it was a good imaginative character and um, uh, he came up with it. But anyway, they, they asked me to come up with um, a script for it. Now, again, you got to forgive me. I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. After the first season of G.I. Joe, it was picked up for a second season of 25 episodes. Uh, and then they would just rerun the previous season's episodes. Yep. And I had an idea that I pitched to Sunbow um, called The Most Dangerous Man in the World. And it was about the Karl Marx, Frederick Nietzsche of Cobra, the guy who had come up with the philosophy that Cobra was supposedly based on. But Cobra Commander had perverted the philosophy and he was doing it wrong. And he throws this guy in prison uh, to keep him isolated so he can't be telling Cobra you're doing it wrong. The guy escapes from prison. Cobra ceases all worldwide activities to try to track this guy down. The Joes have no idea who he is or why he's important. They only know if Cobra wants him, they got to get him first. They catch him first. They realize he is this enormous pain in the ass. And he escapes from the Joes at the end of the episode. And the Joes basically go, you know what? He's out in the world causing problems for Cobra. We don't care. Let him go. And that was going to be my origin of Cobra. And it's different from Larry Hama's origin because Larry's, the comic book G.I. Joe continuity is a separate continuity. It's, it's two parallel but not identical continuities. I wrote this up and they accepted it and they said, yeah, you know, I did an outline, go to script on it, just be sure to include the Cobra Emperor. And I said, the Cobra who? And they said, the Cobra Emperor. And I said, well, who's the Cobra Emperor? And they said, he's the leader of Cobra. And I said, no, he's not. I said, we've just done a whole season where we've established Cobra Commander as the Supreme Commander of Cobra. If you had told us, drop some clues, there might be somebody above him, we could have done that, but you didn't. So how do we explain where this guy comes from? And they go, hmm, good point. Come up with some ideas. So uh, I've said this before. I tell young writers, if someone asks you to come up with a couple of ideas, don't. Come up with the idea you want to do. Mm -hmm. You know, because if they could come up with ideas, they wouldn't be hiring you. That's good. So I came up with two ideas. One was uh, became the origin of the miniseries Arise, Serpentor, Arise. Oh, yeah. Basically, they decide to create a new leader using DNA. The other was uh, there is a lost, there's a secret organization or something, uh, lost world type thing that has been funding Cobra all this time, and they're sick and tired of, of Cobra Commander screwing up, so they send Serpentor in. And Sunbow calls me and says, uh, they love it, do it. And I said, do which one? They said, both. So we did Arise, Serpentor, Arise as the miniseries, 
And the one involving Cobra Law, that became the movie. And um, I... Did you create Dr. Mindbender for that? Or did they... No, Mindbender was already around, but I, I... it was hard to find things for Dr. Mindbender to do. This was the yeah. first time yeah. he really had a story where he was germane to the plot and was actually contributing to it. Yeah. Um, in any case, we we do the G.I. Joe movie, um, and they were telling us, we, we want you to introduce all these brand new characters, and we're going to cycle out a bunch of the old characters. Now, they had done this before in the TV series and the miniseries. And typically, when they would cycle out an old character, they just disappeared from the show and a new character would come in. We did, however, on occasion, do references to the fact that these characters were cycled out. There's uh, one G.I. Joe episode where they go to a parallel world where Cobra has won. And the characters that were being cycled out of the series at that point, they opt to stay in that world and continue the fight against Cobra. Um, Sparks, the original communications guy for G.I. Joe, he came back in um, uh, the second season as a civilian uh, contractor and somebody they contacted and said, hey, you worked on this before. Can you give us any hints? And we established that they regularly cycle out of the G.I. Joe team and they go back to civilian life. So that way, if a kid, you know, if, if a kid was missing a character, they could at least know, well, you know, they finished their tour of duty and now they're civilians again. So they wanted to introduce a whole bunch of brand new characters and they wanted to get rid of several of the old characters, including Duke. I know. Um, You know, they did not realize at that time they had a core group that you simply could not touch. There There were characters that everybody wanted to see. And so you don't get rid of Duke. But anyway, they told me we were, were cycling Duke out. And I said, well, you know, we've been doing a war show for like two years now. And we've had all this combat. And we've had characters get injured, but, you know, they always get better and come back. We've never actually killed anybody. And this is a movie and it's big and you're getting Duke out of the product line. Let's let Duke go with a heroic death, you know, and they go, yeah, that's a good idea. So they let me write Duke's death where he sacrifices himself to save Lieutenant Falcon, his half brother. Okay, and Hasbro liked it so much. They told the guys doing Transformers, kill off Optimus Prime because we're we're taking him out of the, the toy line, too. Are you serious? It works reverse. So the so the the death of Duke inspired the death of Optimus Prime. I did not know that. Exactly. Exactly. What happened though was this. And and Hasbro later said they made a mistake. They should have released the movies in reverse order. They should have started with G.I. Joe, then Transformers, then then finished up with um, um My Little Pony. The deal, as I told you, that they had with uh, De Laurentiis was that they would release a movie, a new movie every month that summer. And they would start with the My Little Pony movie. And, you know, My Little Pony's audience, they're little kids, six years old, eight years old, uh, have to come to the movies with their parents. And there's nothing in the My Little Pony movie that um, 
is traumatic. Okay, it's 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 a good fun uh, kids animated movie. It's it's perfectly in tune with the My Little Pony universe. I wrote My Little Pony episodes, and you know it was a fun show to write, and you know I enjoyed it. Transformers, their target audience was roughly nine years of age. And nine-year-olds were more likely to have to go to the movies with their parents than 12-year-olds. G.I. Joe's target audience was 12. A 12-year-old intellectually understands war is deadly. People get killed in war. If they're watching a war movie and a character gets killed, they are old enough to know intellectually that's a possibility. It might sadden them, it might shock them, but it's it's within the realm of possibility to them. Nine-year-olds have just been watching this fun show every day, and it's bright and colorful, and they really like it, but they haven't yet wrapped their mind around the finality of death. And as I pointed out to Hasbro at the time, you really can't kill a robot. You can, you can run them over with a steamroller. You can chop them up into little bits. You can do all kinds of things to them. And you can always repair them and put them back together. Right. I remember even as a fan, right, we would always, you'd always laugh because uh, everyone shoot, on both shows, they're shooting laser guns at each other. Yeah. And when a Transformer gets hit, when, when an Autobot yeah. gets shot by a Decepticon, you know, they're a robot. So you see them fall down. Oh, yeah. and then you see them laying there and their friend picks them up. In G.I. Joe, we never understood how you could get shot by a laser and then they could just get up and keep and, and keep moving. So you're right. Like even the, even as a kid, you understood that there was a difference between a giant robot getting shot and with a, with a person getting shot. Right. So the Transformer movie came out first. Oh, excuse me. The, the My Little Pony movie came out first. The Transformer movie came out second. You had all of these really revved up nine-year-olds dragging their parents to see the Transformer movie. And I, I, I felt sorry for the parents because the parents are in this theater trapped in what to them looks like an acid flashback from the 1960s. They have no idea what's going on. The dialogue might as well be in high Martian for all they can understand it. And then all of a sudden, every kid in the theater starts screaming and weeping and they're going, what, what happened? What's the matter? I killed Optimus Prime, you know, and it's just, you know, we there was actually a kid in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, we heard that had locked himself in a closet for a couple of days because he was just so traumatized by this. Now, was that was that 85? Did it come out in 85? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it was. So, and yeah, so I was just so you know, I was nine. I was nine. I was the target audience. I was nine years old. My sister uh, took me and she was 13. And um, and she got angry as a 13 year old. She got angry, yeah. not like cried. She got angry that they would kill off Optimus Prime. I remember yeah. it well. I remember it well. So anyway, the the edict immediately came down. Do not kill Duke in the movie. So they very, very clumsily introduced two lines of dialogue. He's in a coma. And then at the end of the movie, he's uh, oh, good news. he's out of the coma. 
No, I I killed that sucker dead. (laughs) I love that. That was one of my all-time favorite moments as a kid, is hearing, he's in a coma, like, off camera. And it was like, what? There's blood splattering everywhere? Who gets into a coma being stabbed into the heart? I never understood that. Yeah, you know. Great. So so when you, so um, when you, so the Transformers movie came out, and there was this reaction. Um, and they said, go make the change, you know, add this dialogue. So the the, the film had already been animated, already been made, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they, they just threw this line of dialogue in. Yeah. Um, the, did they end up releasing? Because I don't remember seeing the no. judge. They didn't, they, they didn't even release them, Peter, did they? No, because, because what happened was De Laurentiis double-crossed Hasbro. And instead of three shows on Saturday and two on Sunday, they only got two shows on Saturday and one on Sunday. And that's like a 40% drop in box office revenue right there. And they, I, I forget exactly what happened, if there was a lawsuit or anything like that, but basically the distribution deal evaporated and G.I. Joe, the movie, was never released in 1985. Uh, we had one screening at San Diego Comic-Con where we had a work print and they got the reels out of order in the work print. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. And um, then it just went straight to video. I mean, it it, it was re-edited into another miniseries and, and put yeah, in. That, that's, that's how I remember it, is it came out as a five-part. I feel like it was yeah. like the premiere, it was like premiere week in 86 yeah. or 86 or something. Right. The five, five like a, a whole week. It was a whole week of the, yeah. and they called it G.I. Joe the movie. So yeah. when you wrote that, uh, that opening sequence is fantastic. Was that your, like, that opening sequence is a little mini uh, kind of a best of hits. Just that the fact that they decided to do a, a song, a music comes like, and, and just the way it was, I just, to this day, I think that is that, all, I, I, I want to give credit where it is due. That is all Larry Houston's work. It was great. Larry did a great job um it, it would have been wonderful if the whole movie could have lived up to that energy <laughs> yeah yeah um, animation you know, was the animation was so clean and slick and it was a great story it was all really good yeah my uh, my portion starts uh, the script that i wrote starts with um you know outside the terror drone as um uh pythona is creeping up to infiltrate the the terror drone well, Buzz, this has been fantastic. I, you've, um, I've learned so much about this Thank world, you, and I, Thank I, you. I, I just love talking with you. And I know, I know, we could talk for another two hours on on yeah. all the other stuff that we didn't get to cover. But I, I, I think that for our audience, the fact that um, to know the intricacies of of animated television that, um, because of all the kids that grew up on what you wrote are now animators and storytellers and filmmakers themselves. And uh, you've really made an impact in, uh, in, in that way. So thank you. Thank you so very much, not only for what you've written and what you contribute to, but for being with us today. We always like to close our podcast by praying um, for thank our guests. Would you, would you allow me to pray for you? Absolutely. Thank you. 
Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for today and thank you for Buzz and thank you for just uh, such amazing stories and such an amazing career. And um, God, just thank you for just his kindness to be able to share with us today. God, I pray uh, just a, a prayer of blessing over Buzz and his life and his family. Uh, God, thank you for uh, just the chance that we have to just uh, learn from him. And and uh, God, we just pray that uh, that uh, you give back to him tenfold that he gives to others. And um, just thank you for this opportunity. And we pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com.